Hello and welcome to the Compassionate Leadership Interview. I'm Chris Whited and our guest today is Donato Tramuto, Global Health Advocate, former CEO of Tivity Health, founder of the Tramuto Porter Foundation and author of The Double Bottom Line, How Compassionate Leaders Captivate Hearts and Deliver Results. You can find Donato on Twitter at Donato Tramuto. Donato, welcome. Thank you very much for uh, for having me here today. Your book is titled The Double Bottom Line. What do you mean by that? Well, it's a great first question. The workplace and the world have changed. Employees, consumers, stakeholders are demanding that companies take care of their people, their communities, and the world around them. It's now really an expectation and a leadership imperative for companies to focus on their people as much as on their bottom line. In doing so, I believe, will actually strengthen their bottom line. And that's how we came up with the title, The Double Bottom Line. Your interest in compassion dates from your childhood. Can you tell us a little about the journey you've been on? Absolutely. And I really do appreciate you asking that question. Um, And the reason why I I preface my, um, my answer with that is because I think that the more we are willing to ask about someone's why, then I really think we learn a lot about them. Nobody cares what you do until they know why you do it. And so my why, I lost my hearing, most of my hearing at age eight. And for 10 years, I had little to limited hearing. I was bullied by my classmates, family members. I was really isolated and uh, very much alone. Yet there were so many people that did show me compassion on the other side. And I think to understand the pain of someone else, you really have to experience that pain as well. When my hearing was partially restored at age 17, I was shocked at the way I talked. I couldn't pronounce my R's. I couldn't pronounce my W's. And my sister-in-law, who was a speech pathologist, gets credit for the fluency Uh, that I have today. However, three months after I lost my hearing, she died in childbirth. And then my brother lost his life in a car accident. And so I think uh, all these tragedies, uh, and it culminated on 9-11. I was supposed to be on the second plane that that hit the South Tower. I got off that particular flight because of a toothache. But my two friends and their three-year-old stayed on that flight and lost their their lives on 9-11. And so my point is when you've had those moments of adversity and challenges, I think it really does form the kind of character that I now have in my DNA, and that is to be kinder and more compassionate to people. You say that compassion is a powerful driver of success. In your view, why is that? I think from several vantage points. Number one, workers are demanding a change in the way they are involved in their day-to-day work. And so whether or not we uh, embrace this new model, the employees are, are asking for it. And so I think it, 
absolutely contributes to greater productivity. But the other thing that I wanted to make sure people realize out of the book, we talk about the overall well-being of the individual who is practicing compassionate leadership. You go home feeling better. There were occasions, and I talk about this in the book, I wasn't always a compassionate leader. However, I learned with time that by being compassionate, I didn't go home at night and wallow over perhaps something I may have said or something that I didn't do or something that I did do that may have offended the employee. And so you feel better. And if you feel better, you got greater dynamics within your family and you're going to have greater dynamics in your organization. Can you tell us about the research that underpins the book? We always knew that we were going to interview leaders, but I had um, initially thought that it would only be 10. We interviewed 41 global leaders. And the interesting part, no one, these were CEOs of Fortune 50 companies, they were president of colleges, they were politicians. No one said no to me. And I don't think it's because, you know, they didn't want to say no to Donato. I think it is more related to the fact that they believe that we need to move forward with a totally different leadership mantra. That part of the research I had always contemplated when I was thinking about the book, what was added to it was I finally said to myself, gosh, we're conducting hundreds and hundreds of hours of interviews, but we have to really now compare our findings with what employees believe is happening in the workplace. So about three months into the book writing, we decided that we would do a survey of 1,500 employees across the uh, United States. And we did exactly that. And so we were able to compare the control group of the 41 with the survey group. And I have to tell you, the data is just overwhelmingly compelling that there is a huge gap in the perspective of the leader's viewpoint on compassionate leadership versus the employees. So I think anyone who's reading the book, the good news is, It's not the gospel according to Donato. There's really hard facts and good data in that book. In the introduction to the book, you say the commonly held notion that compassionate leadership is weak leadership is a myth. Interestingly enough, that's something that a former guest of mine, Michael West, has had something to say about. Can you give us your perspective on that? Absolutely. And the reason why I... I brought that up is because for years and years, I would say that I'm a compassionate leader. And my colleagues would say to me, Donato, that's actually weak leadership. And what we found is that it is not weak leadership. Leadership is tough. And leaders are faced with challenges regularly. And how well they deal with them is tightly correlated with how successful they can be. And so what we introduce is It's not just being nice, that's table stakes. Everyone should really approach one another with niceties. But we introduce a concept called the three T's that you start your relationship in a company by being tender, by showing tenderness to the employees to get the trust. Once you have the trust, then you can practice the third T and that's to be tenacious. And so we have to make Uh, tough decisions. This is not about avoiding the tough decisions. It's a process of how you approach it. Too many leaders that we found in our research tend to approach situations by being tough. I have all the answers and I'm not going to involve you in this decision making. 
And then they go around with the pooper scooper because they've lost the trust. And so what we're saying is you can still be tough. You can still make those really critical decisions. However, start off with tenderness. So you gain the trust in the organization and then you can be tenacious. So you can make the tough decisions. And there are some times that you have to you know, make a jump from tenderness all the way to tenacity. And I've done that before where I tried every tender uh, approach that is out there and the employee is just not willing to share that trust um, platform with me. And that happened only on few occasions when I've had to jump to tenacity. But normally if I used those three T's, I was able to make the kinds of decisions that were most appropriate for the organization. So if trust is a prerequisite to building a successful organization, how do you go about establishing trust? Great, great, great question. And uh, it's very interesting. Um, One of the things that really was revealing to me in the book was as I did the research, my own approach over the last, let's say, 30 years, the first 10 years of my leadership, I was still learning, was very validating. And one of the you know, venues to gaining trust is to listen to understand. Don't listen to react. Too many leaders, they basically go through the motions. They want to sit down with you and they really want to show you that they're listening and they're looking at their handheld device, their secretaries coming in and they're listening and they already have come up with the answers. If you really want to gain trust, do what I did for many years. And that is I listened to understand. I took notes during the meeting. After the meeting, I sent a thank you card and summarized what I believed I heard. And there were times when the employee would come back and say, hey, Donato, thank you for the uh, note. However, I think you may have missed the point. And you've got to validate. Howard Schultz right now, who is the um, founder of Starbucks, there was an article the other day in, I believe, the Wall Street Journal. They said what Howard Schultz is doing this time, which is so remarkable, as you know, he's come back now for a third stint as CEO. He's traveling across the country and having town hall meetings and having private meetings with employees. He's taking notes. He's listening. And the employees are going crazy in a positive way at what he is doing. And so you really have to take the time. And we give examples about what and how I practiced this and what the outcomes were. And we give examples of what other leaders have done when they have listened to understand Don't listen to react. You recognize in your book that having tough conversations with colleagues is challenging. And my experience as a coach is that more leaders than one might imagine find them difficult. And obviously listening to understand is the starting point. But then how do you go on to have a tough conversation with someone in a compassionate way? Well, I think the first thing you have to do, get rid of the word feedback. And the reason why I don't like the word feedback is because it's been out there for a long time and it has just had a negative, you know, it's like when somebody mentions a mouse to me, I get, you know, oh my gosh, you know, there are certain things that you react to. And I think that the employees react not so positively about the word feedback. I use constructive insight. However, I will always ask permission. May I provide some constructive insight to you? I have only had one person, and it was a board member, 
who I had to have a conversation with. Quite frankly, this particular board member was being very much of an obstructionist at the board. And I had asked her, may I provide some constructive insight? And she said, absolutely not. You're not Michael, excuse me. And I said, okay, fine. That was only one in, I'm going to say thousands over my career where I had to have tough conversations. And so ask for permission. And if the individual responds with, yes, please, then you've entered into a trusting relationship with that individual because they know that you care about their well-being. And that's how I always approached it. You say that you finally fully embraced vulnerability in 2014. Would you like to tell us about that? Absolutely. And that is a significant quality associated with compassionate leadership. For many, many years, I kept away from people that I had this severe hearing loss, that I um, uh, failed the fifth grade, and that I am a gay man, that I, as a CEO, I kept that away from people. And in 2014, I was being honored um, by the Robert F. Kennedy Human Rights Center with the Ripple of Hope Award, along with Hillary Clinton and Tony Bennett and Robert De Niro. And when it was my turn to get up to speak, I did not at all have in my speech any mention of my partner of 25 years at that time. And I said to myself, this is ridiculous. I'm getting a human rights award and I'm unwilling to share about my life. And so when I got up there, I took the time to think and I got a standing ovation. And afterwards, we had about several hundred employees out of the 2,000 individuals in the crowd. My employees came up to me and basically said, thank you for sharing that. It makes you now human. Sharing things about yourself, it really helps to connect you with the human touch in the organization. And from that moment, I wish I would have learned that decades before that point, because at that point, I had nothing to hide. But what was really more revealing is I was now one of that employee population. I wasn't above them. I was with them. You launched two not-for-profit foundations in response to the loss of the two friends that you mentioned uh, aboard United Flight 175 on 9-11. Could you tell us about those foundations? Absolutely. And I really would like to tie it back to the definition of compassionate leadership, which we did not approach this book with a definition. However, when we finished our research, we did define what it is. It's empathy in action. And I was very, very pleased that when I look back at my life with the launch of the Tremutal Porter Foundation in 2001, as I stated, um, it was launched following the tragic deaths of my friends. I wanted to do something. I didn't want to have anger in my heart. I wanted to do something. And that's empathy in action. I, I had a lot of empathy in my heart on the loss that had taken place. However, to keep that loss locked up and to be angry would not have been a great uh, journey. So we launched the Tremutal Porter Foundation. And over the last 21 years, we have helped hundreds of young children pursue their college education, children that have had disabilities. We've helped hundreds of organizations deliver on their promise to make the world more just and fair. But we didn't stop there. 
In 2010, I was on a plane heading to Europe and I was reading an article that in our lifetime, one billion people will go to their graves prematurely because they have no access to a healthcare worker. And I looked at this and said, this is horrible. How could 15% of the world's population be doomed because of the zip code? And I shared this with a lot of friends, we need to do something. And I had some friends that said, Donato, this is not our problem. And I said, I disagree. Article 25 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights states that healthcare is a basic right for every single person. And when one person has not had access to healthcare, we have violated that right. And so we launched Healthy Villages in 2011. It's now in its 11th year. It's a global organization providing medical devices to the most challenging areas across the world. We've reduced infant mortality in, in a small village in Kenya, we've reduced it from 100 babies dying per 1,000 live births to down to 15. 85 more babies are now alive per 1,000 births because of healthy villages. And so my point is, that's compassionate leadership. Anyone can say, I feel sorry. However, it's when you do something that you connect the dots in terms of being compassionate and showing leadership. In the final chapter of your book, you quote John F. Kennedy, a rising tide lifts all boats. Yet the experience in many Western economies over the past 60 years has been that the prevailing socio-economic system has led to an increase in individualism, polarisation and inequalities. Can compassionate leadership do anything about this or does it have to take the characteristics of the system as a given? I love that quote, first of all, because... When President Kennedy conveyed it in his inaugural speech, it was really meant to express the idea that if the economy improves, then every participant in the economy will be better. And I do think that there has been income gaps. There have been enormous amount of disparity in gender, uh, as well as healthcare. In the United States, for example, more than 50% of the population can't aggregate $400 for an emergency fund. And so... I do think that compassionate leadership is about changing our viewpoints in the community, that when you improve a community, you improve each person. I think we saw it during the pandemic. I got vaccinated and I wore my mask, not for me. I did it for the other person. I did it for the betterment of the older population. And so there has been an erosion in trust with one another. There's been an erosion and taking the time to listen to the viewpoint of others. And I think that if we can together, and I see this as a movement, I don't see this as a book, we can move forward to be more compassionate and understanding and begin to focus on communities and improving communities. Gosh, I think that we're going to create a better world. And my last point is we're not going to have, and I know we're all searching for that one leader that one universal leader, whether it be Churchill, whether it be John Kennedy or Martin Luther King or the Dalai Lama, we're choosing, we're trying to choose one leader to do it, and that's not going to happen anymore. I really am disappointed to, to say that. It's going to happen among ourselves. And that's why I think this book is an opportunity to improve one person at a time how we can be more compassionate and understand that a rising tide does lift all boats. Touching on compassionate leadership as a movement, I've 
was really encouraged when we had the discussion before this podcast about how well your book's been received in the States. And would you like to tell us a little bit more about that? Listen, it's nice to have had these weekly reports come in from Amazon. We've been number one uh, on Amazon on different categories, um, communication, leadership. And that's been really, from a business perspective, good. But what I see more in those results that have been coming in is that there is a thirst for new leadership. And I have been really touched by the reviews and by the emails that are coming in, basically indicating that they're learning a lot out of the book on what they can do to improve their leadership standard. And so for me, that is really what makes me so proud that that I, I think we may have hit it perfectly. Now, I started this concept of the book five years ago, but as you know, the world has changed just in the last 24 months. Loneliness, for example, my gosh, we are now faced with the new chronic condition of the 21st century called loneliness. People are feeling a sense of lost relevancy, social isolation. The highest rate of suicide right now is among our young We have got to have a wake-up call that there is a lost sense of relevancy and loneliness and social isolation, and a lot of it stems from, and I want to thank you, you know, at the beginning of this, you asked me about my story. Before the interview, I asked you about your story. We can do little things like that every single day. Take the time and ask the other person, tell me about your story. That can help a lot to increase their sense of relevancy. And so, yes, we're having good reviews about the book, but what's even more touching to me is people are really grabbing onto it because they recognize the need for a new leadership approach. Are you able to say anything right now about the Boston University link-up? So we are very, very thrilled. Back in January, Boston University had reached out to me and had several Uh, deans read the book, and they were just like, wow, this book is really strong in that there's good data. It's not overly um, academic. It's good data, and it's practical. And so we entered into a partnership where they are now going to take the book and convert it into a curriculum. There's going to be monthly podcasts, uh, digital programs, And we anticipate that this will also happen with a university uh, in Italy. Um, I can't get into that just yet, but we are in discussions with the university in Italy. And we have two colleges right in back of Boston University in the United States that are now looking uh, to do something similar to what Boston University is doing. The takeaway here is that we don't teach compassion in the schools. We don't teach compassion in the business schools. And so there is a recognition, and we basically call that out in the book, is that you can teach someone how to be compassionate. Yeah, interestingly enough, the idea that you can teach someone to be compassionate is a strong theme of uh, Stephen Treziak's book, Compassionomics, that you may be familiar with. And Stephen's also been a guest on this podcast. So now, Donato, we have a series of questions that I ask all my guests. What is your proudest achievement in your career to date? I think for me, the proudest achievement uh, was the launch of the two foundations. I think that we are not segmented creatures. 
And prior to the event of 9-11, my life was totally focused on business. And 9-11 really transformed my life to recognize that um, your life is not about what you get out of life. It's about what you give back. And I'm just very, very, very proud of, of having launched two not-for-profits and um, being able to put my head down at night and know that perhaps I've made the world a tad better than when I arrived into it. And would you be prepared to disclose your biggest mistake? and what you learned from it. Absolutely. My biggest mistake was not recognizing the benefit of being vulnerable. And I think that I recognized it too late into my career that there's nothing to be gained by hiding your life. Your story is unique to yourself. And if anyone is listening you know, fully to what I'm saying here today, I encourage you that people want to know about you your story is no better, no worse than the story of someone else. It's a story that's unique to you. It's what really defines who you are. 99.999% of our DNA is identical. It's the stories that make us different. And I wish I would have known that earlier in my career, as opposed to hiding so much of what defined me as a human being. You know, fortunately, I you know was able to, um, to correct it in 2014. But, you know, that was less than 10 years ago. And so uh, I lived, you know, almost like in the Wizard of Oz, I lived behind, you know, the curtain for many, many years, which I think was a disappointment to, to me. And is there a person or experience that has inspired you on your journey? I think Pope John Paul II inspired me um, tremendously. I think that when you look at his life, there are so many compassionate leadership moments, um, his forgiving his, you know, would-be assassin, you know, that that was just a remarkable, his working to bring peace across the world, most specifically in his native country, Poland. He was a great inspiration for me. And I would say that one other was Senator Robert F. Kennedy. I love the way Robert Kennedy transformed his life after the tragic loss of his brother, that he could have just said, hey, I'm done. But he found new passions triggered by his personal why. He, he, he recognized the enormous poverty that was taking place in the United States and knew that his life was at great risk, but he, he demonstrated compassion. And I think that those two uh, examples really do underscore that it's not about doing uh, great things in your life. It's about doing little things that have the capacity to drive great change. And I think that Pope, Paul, Pope John Paul II and Robert Kennedy demonstrated that. And is there a book, podcast or video that you'd recommend to aspiring leaders, apart from your own, of course? I think the one book that I would recommend is The Seven Story Mountain by Thomas Merton. That book has been out there for many, many years, but I still... I went back and um, read it again a few months ago. If anyone is looking for transformation in their own lives to really come to grips with the reality that you're going to have challenges and those challenges really do help to define your character. I think the seven story mountain, it's a very long book about six, 700 pages, but it is just by far one of the best books 
that I have read that has become my gospel in terms of how I lead and live my life. And what does your self-care regime look like? Well, it's a great question. You know, in the interviews of our 41 leaders, the only question that stumped all of them was the question, how do you show yourself compassion? And, you know, you call it self-care. I think for me, the opportunity to spend time with the young kids that we have provided scholarships with, uh, we don't just write a check for these kids. They spend time with my partner, Jeff, and myself at our homes. Um, we embrace their, um, their challenges in a way where we make it safe for them to dialogue with us. I, that to me is like, boy, I think it was Mark Twain who once said, I can live two months off of a good compliment. And when I'm with those kids and I hear their stories and I hear how they are able to address adversities because of their relationship with the Tremuto Porter Foundation, let me tell you, I can live two or three months off of that. And uh, that brings me great satisfaction. I could certainly go through the you know, natural things. I enjoy golfing. I enjoy the beach. But all of that to me is superficial if you don't really have this sense of fulfillment. And that fulfillment to me comes from the love and joy and peace that you get from other people. And finally, uh, Donato, what advice would you give your 20-year-old self? I think two advice uh, advices I would give. One is um, never ever forfeit the opportunity to build a relationship with someone. What I learned out of the book was that no one out of the cohort of 41 said no to me. And that was because of the relationship that I developed with them over the course of my, my lifetime. And so for a 20-year-old, never, ever think that the relationship that you might be forming with someone isn't valuable. And the other one I would just say goes back to be yourself. So many people will tell you what to be. It's a lot easier to just be yourself. And as I shared with you, it wasn't until 2014 that I was more willing um, to be myself. And imagine at age 20, had I just realized that people really don't care. Those, of, those who might insult you, well, you know what? Um, they're in the minority. And I am convinced that the majority of our uh, humanity is really about love and peace and support. Well, thanks, Donato. And I loved your book. Uh, I found it practical, accessible and very wise. And thanks for listening to the Compassionate Leadership interview. You can order Compassionate Leadership, the book on Amazon. If you'd like to support the show financially, you can find me at patreon.com forward slash Chris Whitehead. Email me about the show chris at damflask-consulting.com. This episode was recorded by Zoom and the music was brought to you by 96 Back on CPU Records.